0: Hello, I'm Mr. Movies of the famous film Hello, I'm Mr. Movies of the famous film twitter.com and this is the Mr. Movies podcast. for my next trick, what I'm going to do is I'm not going to upload this week. How cool is that? Creaky ass chair. And I'm, I'm doing the trick where I don't, up, don't upload for a whole week. Hello, everyone. Sorry for missing another week. Uh, I was on vacation, and uh, time, time just got a little tight. You know, like you got to like, get back into the swing of things, and then sometimes you just kind of end up not making an episode of your podcast. So what, what what I did was this week the Patreon episode is going to be unlocked, and this is my big whoopsie daisy. I'm sorry uh, because this is the episode I wanted to do for the um, main feed, and this this is the one that this is this this right here is this is what this is what we're gonna do. Um, the obviously the movie we're doing this week is the lobster. Uh, It's a movie I've wanted to do for a little bit because I could never really articulate what it was about The Lobster that I like so much. Because it's not a smart movie by any stretch of the imagination. And I think that's a perfectly fine thing. You know, not every movie needs to be highbrow. Uh, One of my all-time favorite movies at this point is Freddy Got Fingered which I'm completely convinced is going to be, like, one of the hallmark movies of kind of, like, signifying the world before and after 9-11. And I mean that completely sincerely. I first started saying it as a joke, and now I completely and totally believe it. And, um, so, you know, like, it's totally fine to have, like, your favorite movies not be, like, artistic endeavors. And uh, The Lobster, to me, is kind of like... It's going to be a movie that we look at as like a stepping stone of what's emerging as this incredibly popular and more importantly profitable um, indie template for making films. A uh, series of tropes all throughout this movie that would later go on to be like largely synonymous with A24, who's probably the most popular Film production distribution company that isn't one of the giants, I think, at this point. I wonder how much money they make. But you'll see this film. This film is kind of like a a meeting place of all these things that would later go on to be incredibly popular in this very specific distributing company's um, movie catalog that they tend to push out. And these things are... Going to be talked about uh, later on as I kind of walk through the movie, but yes, that movie that's coming out where there's the child that's a sheep and it's overcast the whole time and everybody kind of talks robotic. It's not a wholly original idea. You could argue that the success of the Lobster probably contributed a bit to that. So what I wanted to go through with the Lobster was uh, what what makes it a a fun movie. And I think that the fact that the film just kind of like... It, it just accepts that all of us are tired of thinking whenever it comes to satires. Like, I shouldn't have to sit there and wonder and go, Oh, this is actually... Uh, th- this right here is a metaphor for the Tiananmen Square Massacre. As you can tell, as people are fleeing and one man is holding grocery bags. You know, like, I don't, I don't want to think. Sometimes it's nice to have a movie that just grabs you by the hand and goes, isn't it unfair that there are societal norms that say that you have to get married and have kids? Isn't that a little bit unfair? What if you don't want to do that? And I think that that's a perfectly fine premise for releasing your film with. And as as I made my way back through The Lobster, I mean, there's like aspects of it that I obviously didn't like, and I think a lot of people rightfully don't like. And it almost all goes back to like that weird uh, robotic speaking cadence that absolutely everybody has that you could probably attribute to like like a higher level satire type thing where it's like, in order to find a mate, you must do the script. And if you're reading a script, you probably aren't putting any emotions behind it. Because the people are very, very upfront with the different things that... What we would call, like, make you a person, but what they call are, like, faults that you need to match up in order to be in sync with someone. Like, one of them is, like, a girl gets nosebleeds, and the first way that she introduces herself to someone is, I get nosebleeds often. And then that's it. You know, it's like, I don't even think she says her name before she mentions, like, I've got baggage. I think your nose is bleeding. Really? Oh, no. This happens to me all the time. It's really, really annoying. I know. I have a nosebleed problem too. Is that a bigger satire on on relationships and how we all kind of have like a playbook that we have to run off of, or else we be left alone? Or is it just him doing haha funny filmmaking? I, I I'd argue it's probably more uh, haha funny filmmaking after watching The Favorite and realizing that uh, he just kind of made a period piece just to shit on stuff because it's funny to shit on stuff. One of my favorite scenes of that movie is when a guy who looks just like Stavros Halcius is just getting pelted with fruit while people just outside of the city are starving. <laughs> that's good. It's just filming Let Them Eat Cake, but it's doing it in a very modern sense with a silly boy who's getting hit with all sorts of types of berries and pomegranates. So I think that I should probably stop, um, Just kind of doing an intro, and finally go into it. Uh, This is Yorgos Lanthimos, probably not best, but certainly his most popular movie, The Lobster. Have you ever been on your own before? No, never. Your last relationship lasted how many years? Around 12. Sexual preference? Women. Is there a bisexual option available? No, sir, this option is no longer available. Georgos Lanthimos is a really interesting director, in my opinion. Um, He's Greek, as if you couldn't tell by his name. Uh, He got his start doing just like basic commercial type stuff, and then I'm assuming just got bored enough that he decided to become an incredibly popular indie filmmaker, Uh, it's really, really fascinating to me whenever people have these, like, pristine, clear backgrounds and then they start going into film that would be broadly categorized as boundary-pushing. I'm not saying, like, The Lobster's, like, super boundary-pushing, but I mean, like, you wouldn't count this as, like, a blockbuster-type movie. This isn't, like, your traditional romance-type movie. So it's gonna end up in the other category, and that's just the way things are gonna be. It's my podcast. I was listening to a podcast with him, I think it was like the A24 Directors Studio, Directors Guild, some one of those uh, podcasts. And he just talked about like how boring it was just being one of these like pristine filmmakers that make a ton of money. And he's just one of those guys who got lucky, took the dive, managed to have himself a hit with Dogtooth, and since then seems to have been given free reign to make whatever it is that he wants to make. I still haven't seen Dogtooth, but I have watched The Lobster, I watched The Killing of a Sacred Deer, and I've watched The Favorite. And I I, I think he's a fun director. He's definitely a director who is very, very quick to um, shit on the norms of a genre, just because he feels like it. And I think that there's something super endearing about somebody who has a lot of respect for the thing that he's satiring, but at the same time wants to make people mad by... By, by, by dropping a little hot one on it. You know, it's uh, Hollywood's full of sickos. You may as well take their money and make something tragic with it. So I think that, you know, given that that's the background of the director, it makes sense that the lobster is incoherent in parts and feels kind of like a high school play in others. And I think that that really does add to the strength of the film. Because again, not every movie that comes out has to be a movie that makes you think. Sometimes a really, really blatantly obvious, hit-you-over-the-head-with-a-fist satire is exactly what you want. You know, as you watch this movie, it's full of stunning visuals, but at the same time, I mean, it's, it's got absurdist comedy in some parts. It's got uh, genuine bits of horror as they talk about how these people are turned from people into animals of their choosing. You know, it's, it's, it's more absurdist than anything. I remember reading a lot of stuff where they had categorized the movie as being a surrealist comedy, and I, you know, listeners of the Patreon cast know that you can't just say surreal and point at something, it's going to make me upset, so it's it's absurdist, like at, at its core, and absurdism is probably the hardest type of comedy to do, because if you mess it up, you sound like you're joking around like an eight-year-old, you know? I, I, I think he did a good job. The Lobster, uh, at the end of his career, is probably going to go into the Hall of Very Good. It won't be his best film, but it's definitely the film of his that I've watched the most. I don't know if that's a mark of uh, quality, but it's the only one I've gone back and watched again. This is my third time watching it. Good movie, Your Ghost Lanthimos. The movie opens up with a sad lady driving in the rain. She, um, kind of looks like she's doing that thing that we used to do when we were kids, where you're the star of your own music video. She's got, I don't know, like Natasha Bedingfield playing, as the hills of what looks like the midpoint between scenic Iceland and Gary, Indiana, blurs in the background as we focus in on her very, very obvious grief. She pulls up to a herd of donkeys and just, just fucking domes one of them, uh, like, like mafioso style. You know, like tap, and then pap-pap. This scene isn't steeped in metaphor or anything. This isn't a grand allegory for NAFTA or the treatment of the Global South. It's a lot more simple than that. And this, folks, is what, what the, the big thing that I wanted to talk about in this movie. And I just want to say, we're in what I call... The Clunk Zone. zone. What is The Clunk Zone? Well, buddy, you're in it. The Clunk Zone is the furthest end of the spectrum that satire can go before it becomes a high school play. High, high high-end satire is bad, in my personal opinion. Way too often, it gets, like, obfuscated in its own being... If that makes sense. So full of subtle nuance. Uh, A lot of it gets lost on us. And whenever it comes down to it, it usually emboldens the thing that it was trying to satire in a really, really nasty way. Uh, Remember what I keep harping on about whenever I say that nuance is for academics and babies? Well, I, I, I mean it. Have the vague bits be on important things, like character motivations or backstories. Don't have it be anything that's critical to your argument. Which is why... The Clunk Zone is where I like to hang out. This satire... It's extremely heavy-handed. Uh, it's its so fucking heavy-handed that it it's practically spoon-fed to you. And that's a good thing, I want to point out. Like, I genuinely love this type of shit. If you haven't watched the movie, you'll... You'll see. Which is, uh... Really, really unfortunate, uh, wording, given the end of the movie. Shit. (laughs) (laughs) It's here that we finally meet our main character, Colin Farrell, who is fatter than he's ever been, and I love it. It's a good look on him. This, like, uh, British dad who probably works in a finance-adjacent job. He's getting bad news. Uh, something, right? Something involving his wife? And there's this narrator just spoon feeding this information to us. His wife is leaving him, and he's deeply upset about it. Naturally. Uh, What's funny is that as soon as he gets this news, he's taken away by what seems like agents of the state. He has to pack all of his belongings and make his way to what looks like a recruitment center? Art museum lobby? Who knows? It's something bureaucratic. And he's being asked questions like, what's your sexual preference? He says women, but he's had a homosexual experience in college, then asks if there's a bisexual option, which there isn't. Is this just humor or a statement that men aren't allowed to be bisexual without being considered outright gay? Who, who knows, dude. I'm just a guy with a podcast. Wait, what's that? I'm Mr. Movies? And I should... And I've... I've built a podcast listening base because I tend to. Oh no! Oh, that's not good at all. I don't know how to answer this. One. This is a thing in film that I think is completely and totally beaten into the ground at this point, but is uh, at the time wasn't like the most beaten into the ground thing, which is the near future uh, apocalypse, uh, apocalypse dystopia, whatever you want to call it. And this movie very much does that, but it does it in a way that's not incredibly brutish about it. Like, there's um, things all throughout the movie where there's, like, different checkpoints where you have to check in and make sure that you're married, or, you know, like, agents of the state will take you to these places to make sure that you're suitable to find a mate or you're turned into an animal of your choosing, obviously. You get a choice in that, at least. But, like, this near-future dystopia-type Cinema became really, really popular right after the financial collapse in 2008. And I mean, it's kind of hung on since. Like, it's it's absolutely baffling how little uh, faith we have in the system anymore that, like, all the media that we consume, if it isn't outright apocalyptic, it's like a near-future dystopia. Like, nothing's good anymore, and we all know that nothing's good anymore, and our media has begun to reflect that. There's a thing I did on the Patreon a few weeks ago where I talked about how, like, sci-fi, how it's kind of like the mile marker for how general society is feeling. And ever since, uh, what was it, like, the 1970s? I think it's like right around whenever Nixon took office. Sci-fi has just become more and more nihilistic to a point where every single sci-fi book now is about how are we going to stave off the apocalypse, how are we going to survive through it. And I think that movies are finally catching up to that. So, movies are at the near-future dystopia. Uh, They're kind of where sci-fi books are at in the 80s. And, I mean, there's tons of movies like this. And your dystopia doesn't have to be, like, jackbooted, you know, agents of the state coming in with guns and saying, where's your marriage papers? It could be something as simple as, like, you have failed as a human. You will be stripped of your humanity and released into the wild. You know? Um... Movies like her even fall into that as well, where that's a dystopia of sorts. Everybody got too much damn phone, and sometimes you fall in love with your damn phone and i that's it's the near future dystopia stuff I think is a lot of fun, especially whenever this movie came out, which was like two thousand fourteen or two thousand fifteen uh it it wasn't completely beaten into the ground yet now we are in the year two thousand twenty one and Fuck me, dude. Is this beaten into the ground now or what? During this conversation, they go on uh, to bring up his dog, which is apparently his brother, who's described to look a bit like Philip Seymour Hoffman, I think is a way that they describe him. Middle-aged, balding, the gusto of a virile man, star of hit comedies like Twister and Synecdoche, New York. This takes us into what looks like a lineup for the NFL Draft. They strip him down practically naked and give him the spiel, which is no doing anything unsavory. We will be providing everything for you from food to clothes, and you'll be hunting. And what is the hunt for? Well, loners. You know, uh, this is not the most smart satire. It is, after all, The Clunk Zone. And, you know, The Clunk Zone is for heavy-handed stories that don't get bogged down in things like wordplay and thinking. Let me have my satire that basically says, Married folks are such a norm that people who want to be left alone are seen as freaks. That's fine. That's perfectly fine. Not everything has to be a documentary about the subtleties of sensory deprivation in a dying world. Sometimes... Sometimes you just want to see a man with a gut feel bad for some wet loners. Hunting for these loners adds an extra layer of complexity to it all. With each one that you catch, you get an extra day at this resort. And for what? If you fail to find love, you're turned into an animal of your choosing. Um it's pretty wild that like you aren't allowed to um, pick animals that like don't match it, like, like the absurdity of not matching is talked about a ton all throughout this movie. Um, the animal that he ends up picking is a lobster. And I mean, his reasoning behind it is like literally the uh, return to tradition, the uh, style mentality of like, I want to be a lobster because they live forever and they're super fertile and they mate for life. Just like extremely uh, return to tradition stuff. And um, it's this is like a theme that goes on a lot throughout the movie. Because, I mean, it's like the animal part takes a backseat to like kind of the central argument of it all. Which is that in order for your relationship to go on, in order for it to be successful, you have to match. Which is the big thing. And everyone has a thing that they match with. Um, th- this is going to be a recurring thing throughout this, but it's like, it even goes down to like physical deformities have to match. You know, if you have a limp, your wife has to have a limp. If you get nosebleeds all the time, your partner has to get nosebleeds all the time because that's the thing that you have in common. The other thing that they um, preach in the scene, which I think that is funny in the way that they do... Uh, like absurdism in a way that isn't like you're joking like a toddler. Um, They applaud him for picking a lobster because everyone chooses to be a dog. And the reasoning that they apply here is that no one wants to be an unusual animal. That's why there's endangered animals and why we have so many dogs in the world. Is this a grand satire about the animals we prioritize in saving as we all keep our meat-eating diets? Or is it a simple joke? I don't know, baby. I'm in the Lung zone. Now, have you thought of what animal you'd like to be if you end up alone? Yes, a lobster. Why a lobster? Because lobsters live for over 100 years, are blue-blooded like aristocrats, and stay fertile all their lives. I must congratulate you. The first thing most people think of is a dog, which is why the world is full of dogs. Very few people choose an unusual animal, which is why they are endangered. A lobster is an excellent choice. There's some really funny, heavy-handed shit all throughout this movie. Like, literally padlocking your belt so you can't masturbate. Like, I I just, I love this type of shit. Uh, One thing that stuck out to me was the use of narration in almost like a Stanley parable kind of way. Like, it's difficult to convey uh, satire purely visually, So every now and then, you get assists from things like an internal monologue of a woman who sounds hotter than anyone who would ever pay attention to you. This uh, narrator, this detached voice we will find out is actually someone, and it makes sense why all throughout this movie, she's talking in a passive sense. It's a fun bit of writing. It's a thing you're never supposed to do in writing, and they do it in this movie. That's the little thing you learn whenever you subscribe to the Mister Movies Patreon, five dollars a month, you get an extra episode a week. Fuck, I should probably start making more episodes. This movie becomes very stripped down um, in its uh, versioning of things like social interactions to its bare bones. Like, uh, if you program robots to behave like we do, this is probably what we what, what 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 like they would do like how they talk about defining characteristics of certain people being these like literal physical traits like a a smile or a limp and what they make sure to point out is the only reason why this guy's wife stuck with him so long after she had died was because he had a limp that he got because his mother had turned into a wolf and he wanted to hug her one last time and then was promptly mauled by the pack <laughs> that's such a <laughs> that's such a funny thing he talks about like He gets completely, just brutally um, eviscerated by this pack of wolves, except for two. And he was like, I figured one of those two were my mother. (laughs) Man, is this a grand satire? I've done that too recently. Uh, Damn, this movie is like damn tender. Am I right, fellas? Up top. There's a lot of ideology at play during the uh, dance scene. You know the dance scene that I'm talking about. Like everyone only being allowed to wear one of two outfits. And the wild age disparities of everyone trying to couple up. Is this a... Hey, what's that? I shouldn't riff on this part. It's after this that we get our first hunting scene. A rifle with some tranquilizer darts used for hunting loners. And it's really well shot. It looks like a Salvatore Ganacci video. This look here, among many things that I talked about at the beginning of this episode, I I, I don't remember, did I? I'm always tired now, is what would later go on to become synonymous with A24's stereotypical style. These are, in no particular order, in pertaining to the scene, an old song with a piano playing in the background, large swaths of the film being in slow motion, overcast lighting, Animals being heavily featured as people, but not, somehow, and dense overgrowth forest for the sake of showing fertility of the future laying ahead of you. Or it's just a forest. Again, we're in the CLUNK ZONE. It's an Occam's Razor type situation when we're in here. The movie then really begins to pitch the reason for having a partner in an extremely stripped-down sense, and the enhanced drive to compromise and find one. They do this by showing a man, specifically an incredibly old man, choking and then dying alone. Then they show what would happen if he had a young partner there to help save him. This has a counter, um, which shows what happens when women walk alone versus when they walk with a partner. And when a partner's there, she doesn't get sexually assaulted. Wild how different the worlds are being a man who's alone and a woman who's alone. Which is this a satire with nuance, or is it heavy-handed? See how much easier it is to digest? It's, it's genuinely good shit. I mean, all the stuff in here, it's like, it's it's steeped in stuff that is genuinely thoughtful satire, specifically, like, the older man with the younger female partner, and, you know, it's like, oh, if you're a man, think about, like, a woman who'll be able to take care of you, and if you're a woman, think about how you now have protection because you are kept. I mean, like, all that stuff, the the crowd literally applauds for it, and I I don't know, man, that's... That's, that's very much on the nose. It's good shit is what I'm getting at. They also emphasize how starving yourself sexually makes you way more likely to settle. They do this by giving people blue balls and then forbidding them from jacking off. This carrot and stick maneuver literally is, if you jack off, we will burn your hand in a toaster. A big stick for a little carrot, am I right, fellas? Up. Up up top. I love this scene so much. It's John C. Riley of all people and um, he gets caught jacking off and I'm pretty sure he has like pornography or something in his uh, room and they expressly forbid you from jacking off. uh, And (laughs) what they do is they go to him at his dinner table where he's sitting alone and they (laughs) hold him down and burn his hand in a toaster (laughs) and everyone around (laughs) him just has to ignore it. (laughs) I'm not laughing at the fact that it happened, I'm laughing at the absurdity of it all. It's a very funny punishment for jacking off, (laughs) burning your hand in a toaster. Come with me, through a guided meditation. You are at Comic-Con. You're dressed up like Poison Ivy, if she was steampunk. Your vines are wires, your seeds are gears, and you have a tall top hat with six pairs of goggles on top of it. Everything on you is either brass or leather. You just want to go to the bathroom. All the fluorescent lights have made you forget what day it is and why you're wearing this outfit. It's only a 50-foot walk, but every step you take You're stopped by Guy saying, Where's my hug? Um, have you even read The Court of Owls? This is hardly an appropriate outfit for a woman in the year 1890. If you don't hug me, I will kill myself. That last one... That last one, um, is literally used in this movie. Except the roles are reversed. Ha! Pranked. Uh, A woman tells Colin Farrell, if you don't come to my room and fuck me, I will literally kill myself. And guess what? It's just as upsetting coming from someone other than those made-up Comic-Con guys. Who knew that, that threatening to kill yourself to have a sexual encounter is a bad idea. Is this a nuanced satire about... Remember how I talked about physical traits being just about the only thing people find in common instead of personalities? Well, as the clock ticks down, people become more and more desperate, literally to the point that this one guy is giving himself brain damage by slamming his head on the table to purposely give himself nosebleeds, just like his new girlfriend always has. But the reason I brought this up is to point out something they said, again, extremely heavy-handed satire. The woman who runs a hotel goes, "'You've got all these vacation days to go through to prove that you'll stay a couple.'" Oh, and if you can't solve your issues, we will assign you a child. That always works. Which, like, fuck, man. I know it's heavy-handed, but you have to admit, this is pretty good. I, I don't I'll see how people can't like this. In probably the funniest moment of the movie, in, in the morbid sense, the woman who threatened to kill herself threw herself from the first floor window to the ground... <laughs> Like, her her brains get exploded out of her body, and she's just screaming. <laughs> and the whole time, Colin Farrell's trying to play it tough for a sociopath, and he looks like he's going to cry the whole time he's trying to flirt with her. He's like, oh man, I'm so tired. I can't believe I have to listen to this woman die <laughs> while, I, while I take my nap. I hope she suffers quietly. <laughs> like, it's so good. There's no satire here. This is comedy. It's top shelf stuff. Only a Greek could come up with a bit as good as this. What happened? She jumped from the window of room 180. There's blood and biscuits everywhere. I hope she dies right away. On second thoughts, I hope she suffers quite a bit before she dies. I just hope her pathetic screams can't be heard from my room. Because I was thinking about having a lie down, and I need peace and quiet. I was playing golf, and I'm quite tired. The last thing I need is some woman dying slowly and loudly. I can't hear you with all this screaming. We'll talk some other time when it's quieter. Colin and the sociopath get together, and things go exactly the way you'd expect for them to go. Passionate. Emotionless sex. Physical abuse. Followed by outright murder. You know... Like a normal relationship. I'm not going to dwell on this too much, but the narration work here is done in such a clumsy way that it... works. Strangely. What I'm talking about is the narration literally goes through the process of, like, an angsty 14-year-old boy listening to new metal on his alarm clock radio. It's things like, Because she killed my brother, I wanted to do bad stuff to her. Like kick her. And, uh, Knife kick with a knife a knife kick the worst assault of them all but the narration work should feel this stupid like if you're to articulate exactly how you felt during all this as it was happening you'd be like i want to push you over because you're ugly and scream at you i uh and then i'll scream at you again i think you know like it's It's perfectly reasonable that you would be just a deeply clumsy person if this happened. He chooses the worst death for her of all, which is that he turns her into the worst animal he could think of, and they never expand on that. But the narrator here really smoothly guides us into the loners and how quickly they accept him after he runs away. The loners are just lonely people. But it's like forbidden by internal law that they even flirt, let alone have sex. Like I don't know, is this a, is this just absurdism? Is this a is this a thing that people who live on their own do? Where it's like, oh, you're falling for the temptations of the flesh when you should be more like me, a man who argues on the internet all day. I don't know. I think that uh, these are purposely put in here to be like the harsh, completely totally countercultural movement. Doesn't I mean like if one side's forcing you to get married, the other, you know, if, if you're like, Oh, I want to be completely countercultural get this against this, it'd be like, I'm completely and totally lonely and now I refuse to have sexual contact with anyone that I ever see. As opposed to just like I don't know, just kind of being happy. This is where we finally meet our narrator. Someone who, like, on Twitter would be part of a network of taxidermists who put dresses on dead rats. She's cold. Like every single person in this universe has some sort of personality disorder. They're all phenomenally incompetent when it comes to social graces, but there's something special about this girl. The rules of being a loner are pretty simple. Absolutely no empathy. You are all alone. How fucking dare you, dude? So showing any sort of sexual endeavor means you end up with things called the red kiss, which is slitting your lips. Real normal behavior, Uh, So this girl, literally on a trip into town for supplies, but not like for food and water. Uh, It's for stuff like contact lens solution. Um, We start to realize that she is in an incredibly similar situation to Colin. She wants to love people, but has been hardened by being alone. And this starts to break down in a really endearing way. First by buying a pain ointment. And then again, by applying it for him in a spot that he can't reach. Marriage is a... Marriage is a whole bunch of tiny little things like this. Uh, Speaking of marriages in this universe, uh, probably the most important one, uh, the series of loners break into the hotel manager's bedroom uh, and forces the husband to try to kill his wife. And, um... I'm almost 100% certain that this scene was lifted from one of those college humor type YouTube channels from the early 2010s. The bit was, a group of burglars break into a house, ties up the kids, and tells the mom, you have to kill one of them or we'll kill all three. And it's pure chaos and heartbreak until the mom decides which one to shoot. And she pulls the trigger, but the gun is empty. The burglars are like, they're all like, uh, all right, now uh, now you know which one of you she likes the least. Have fun doing whatever you want with that information. And this movie does literally that. It plays to an age-old trope of, he who loves the least in the relationship holds all the power. And that's exactly what's done here. The guy pulls the trigger, and the gun is empty. So, what exactly do you do here? I mean, like, obviously divorce, but... What happens when you can't find someone to love again? Oh, yeah. That's not a good thing. Naturally, our two main-ish characters fall in love. They don't want to be loners. It's weird what a little empathy will do for you. And they do everything that normal couples do. Which is the, uh, minute stuff, like closely enjoying each other's company to literally developing their own language, which every couple does. I think everyone in a relationship has some sort of way of speaking that's just abnormal and impossible to parse unless you're one of the two people experiencing it. They do exactly this. Granted, it's not like calling your pussy your Wabaha. Instead, it's like how a baseball team manager communicates with his pitcher. And that's nice, I think. I think it's nice. I don't know. I'm very tired. In a shock twist of the movie, um, they get caught. And they blind the girl. They have her eyeball scooped out. I think. Something along those lines. I literally have no idea why this happens. Something to do with the loner stuff being broken? I don't know. I'm always floored at the thought of being blinded at the dentist, which seems to be what happens to her. They bury Colin alive and take her to get blinded which sets off a chain reaction that kills the only empathetic person in the entire Lobsterverse, the maid. I think she's the only person who deserved to live here. And this opens up a whole a whole, a whole, big old can of worms. Uh, the, the movie kind of like touches on this notion of like uh, dating whenever somebody suddenly incurs a disability and the type of power that exists in it. And, uh, man, is it tough. I mean, like, the way that Colin's character handles this is, I mean, she's blind, and there has to be, like, some sort of physical um, abnormality, I I think is the word that I want to go with, in order for you to stay as a couple, and if hers is being blind, what Colin has to do is, well, I mean, we, we see what he has to do here, you know? But, like, I think that it's really interesting that this movie kind of, like, flaunts this angle of, like, oh, if somebody suddenly has a disability in their relationship, what do you do? And the movie literally ends on this note. You know, Colin gets one last good look at his wife before deciding that he needs to blind himself if they're going to keep this relationship going. He goes to the bathroom and raises a knife wavering in front of his eye. And we just hold there. Who knows what happens? Does it matter? Is this a grand satire about people with disabilities and relationships? Or is this just an easy way out for him? Who knows? We are, after all, in the Clunk Zone. zone. I want to thank you guys for listening to the show. I want to thank you for financially supporting the show. say it every week. I'll say it this week, too. Um, Got an episode planned for Thursday. Things should be getting back to normal now that I'm not just vacationing. (laughs) And uh, my, my free time's looking a little bit better. I'm getting back into the swing of these. And I hope to be making some stuff to make up for the fact that I've missed so many weeks. Seriously, thank you guys for listening and I I hope that this episode was worth the wait. And if it wasn't sorry. Whoops I <laughs> don't know what else to say. Go watch the lobster, it's a good movie.